Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Michael Dilla, class of 2009, district business manager for Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Michael will share with us how he sharpened his communication skills, selling cars, how it set the foundation for him to be a team leader for sales at a global pharmaceutical company. Joining us from the class of 2009 is Mike Dilla. Mike, what do you do? Hi, uh, thanks, Brian. I am a district business manager for Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Mike, when did you start your your path towards Takeda Pharmaceuticals? Uh, actually, so pharmaceutical sales is all I've done since I graduated college. Um, I was fortunate to land in the field and I've just kind of progressed up the ladder since graduating from college. Now, did you? where did you start off uh, your schooling? I started off at Western Illinois. I was there for a year, and then I transferred to Illinois State, and that's where I eventually earned my degree. Now, you didn't start off initially in business. What did you start off at at first? Actually, I started off as a PE major, um, and when I think back, I'm not quite sure why I switched. Um, I There was nothing that really dawned on me. I switched to economics and I just sort of uh, took a couple classes and liked it. And so that's what I ended up majoring in. So you you majored in managerial economics. Like what was that? What were some of the classes like for that? Uh, yeah. So managerial economics, it's basically the whole economics degree. And then there's a few extra courses uh, about 15 hours that focus in business. You do a little bit more accounting, a little bit more finance. Uh, sorry, there's my dog in the background. But um, you do have a little bit more of that. The, the reason I did managerial economics was because I was a business administration minor. It was only one or two classes in addition to the minor um, in order to have that extra tag onto my degree. So when when you made the switch from... Uh, education and uh, to to business. Uh, what were some of your favorite classes in undergrad that were, that kind of confirmed that you made the right choice and you really ended up enjoying yourself in, in business? Uh, I really liked uh, microeconomics. It, it's kind of sh- surprising because usually people kind of think of that as the the most difficult part of the econ major. But it's something that just sort of clicked with me. And I'd say if I think back to what classes I use on a day in and day out basis, it's the stuff from that microeconomics classes because I'm always making decisions and weighing trade-offs. And, uh, you know, no decision's perfect. Not everything goes smoothly, but you kind of weigh the good and the bad and, and chart a way forward and, and go with it. But when you were in, at, when you're at ISU, when did you start like maybe 
did you have any like internships or kind of jobs like while you were at school uh, that helped kind of you know, uh, also kind of frame your experience in business? Yeah. So, and uh, I, you sent me over the uh, question list. I'll kind of jump ahead uh, to one of the, I think the most important things I could stress to anyone in high school getting ready for college is get an internship or some sort of tangible differentiating experience because you'll find that a lot of folks have college degrees and you really want to separate yourself. I know that wasn't your question right there, but I actually uh, met a kid in a class. We became friends and I sold cars for a summer at his dad's car dealership. It's uh, Haggerty Ford in West Chicago on Roosevelt. Um, And that gave me some tangible sales experience to put on a resume that when I graduated and the company I ended up working for was looking for a more entry level type profile of salesperson at that time, uh, it really helped me differentiate myself from a lot of the other recent graduates. What was the first job that you took out of college? I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. I started off, so the company I work for now, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, um, they were doing an expansion of their sales force and they were hiring contract sales reps. So they work with a different company called Quintiles to kind of build them a sales force. And it just gives them a little bit more flexibility. And so I I latched on there, um, became a pharmaceutical sales rep. Um, So I was going into doctor's offices and basically I, I tell people I was selling a habit. I'm trying to get the doctors when they see a patient, um, who is suffering from a, a different, a various disease that I cover to write my product instead of a competitor. What's the learning curve on uh, understanding the product and then being able to find the better leverage to sell it to this particular um, medical pr- practitioner? Uh, how do you, how well do you have to like know the product and kind of study it to know it inside out to be able to then speak uh, to a doctor? Because I imagine you're a very important bridge from the researcher and developers and then go into the, it actually being uh, then bought by this particular doctor's office. Uh, what's, what's the, how do you study up for that? And how do you, what's the learning curve? So it, it's, it's a, it's a steep learning curve in that, you know, you don't have to have a science background to get into pharmaceutical sales. I certainly don't. Um, it probably helps, you know, to, to learn some of the science, but the training is pretty robust and prepares you for the product side. Uh, I remember I started off with two products in gout and diabetes, and I had one week of home study where your 40-hour work week was literally going through um, various modules, kind of like just getting a textbook and diving in. And then there was a test at the end of it, and it was it was kind of frightening because if you didn't pass that test in your first two tries, they initiated the separation process, as they called it, meaning they fired you. Um, <laughs> and when you passed the test, I actually got to fly out to Vegas, and we did hands-on sales training where you actually practiced the sales pitches and dug in a little bit deeper and kind of got that simulation of real world experience of what it will be like when you actually hit the feet on the street and are communicating with the doctors. Um, Of course, that never fully prepares you, right? I mean, eventually you just kind of get thrown in the water and you you have to sink or swim and you'll learn more um, just getting out there and doing it. But the training was robust. It took a lot of work. Um, but if you put in the time and the effort, it's, it's like anything else, you'll, you'll get the results you're looking for. 
so what was that like what was the test what did the test look like was it like multiple choice was it was it like math involved do you remember uh, and how long did it take to actually complete the exam um so each product's a little bit different on the time i think it was uh, they're always give or take an hour of uh, usually around 40 or 50 questions ranging from multiple choice fill in the blank select all it's very similar to your standardized test format, and it it comes right from the textbook. I mean, fortunately, it being my first job and being right out of college, it wasn't that difficult to uh, get good at taking the test or learn the information from from that aspect because I had just been doing it for the last you know fifteen or so years. If I had started in pharmaceuticals after having a first career for ten or ten or fifteen years, it might have been a steeper learning curve. But I'd say. Anyone who gets through college could certainly get through the um, written exam that I had to go through. So, so there's like a, a second part of this, which is the actual, really kind of like the persona part. So you you got the book learning part done with the test, but then you had to go to the next set of training to um, really develop the uh, the persona of who you are when you go into the doctor's office and, and all that. Um, I was wondering if you can maybe describe the training a little bit more, <laughs> as long as we don't get into proprietary stuff. Like, yeah, what's, no. uh, how, what's the, what's, what was that? How long did that last? And um, what were some of the things that you learned that really kind of augmented your kind of confidence uh, to do what you do? Yeah. It, it, so it was a week. Um, it was eight hours a day. And you basically, you have, you get a various amount of sales aids, right? I, I have an iPad with 10 or 12 or 14 slides on each product, um, giving different clinical information, whether it's, you know, the, the pros and the cons of the product. Uh, and you kind of go through step-by-step step the right way to verbalize that. So a little bit of background, pharmaceuticals is heavily regulated. You can't say certain things um, and do certain things. So they coach you up in that aspect a lot on what is kind of okay to say and what is not and what is good messaging or, or not. And then you put your own spin on it. Uh, you know, you've got to bring for any sales job you're going to do, you have to bring your own personality and your authentic self to it. Otherwise, you won't come across to the person you're selling to as trustworthy. Um, and and to augment it, you I I just remember a lot of uh, late nights in the hotel working with some of the other people in my district, practicing the role plays over and over again until you feel good about it. Because at the end of the week, there was another certification where someone graded you and made sure that you could adequately uh, say the, the, the key messages and whatnot. And again, if you didn't pass that, they fired you. So it was a high pressure situation, but they did a really good job preparing you. And again, I, I feel like if if you kind of have that sales personality and skill, you know, if you put the work in your, you would have been okay on that as well. So you, you passed. And so it, once you pass that next kind of performative uh, uh, elements or uh, of, of the, of becoming trained in at your job, then you go back and you start uh, the sales. And I was wondering, so I have two follow-up questions with that. How do you then um, designate your region, and then how do you um, how do you generate leads to then uh, meet the, the the doctors to make the sales? So 
I was fortunate. So the footprint is kind of drawn out for you uh, based on zip codes. So each each is a little different in geographical size, uh, you know, depending on on um, how populated a certain area is. For instance, I covered Naperville. Uh, so my geographical footprint wasn't as big as, let's say, central Illinois, where, you know, the population density is less. But that's all given to you in the form of zip codes. And then to be fully transparent, we get a lot of data on what doctors are using our products. And so that kind of generates where you want to be spending your time, right? If a doctor is got, you know, I'm in depression now. If a doctor's got seeing more depressed patients, you know, those are the doctors you want to call on and try and get them to use your product. So you create a business plan from there. And, and from there, it's as simple as showing up, trying to f- learn the ropes of the office, figure out who the key people are that are going to get you access to the doctor. And then when you're in front of the doctor, it's figuring out what they find important um, for their patients when treating certain diseases and trying to align your product to that as best as you can hoping that when the patient comes in, uh, they prescribe your product instead of someone else's. So you, you, what was your first uh, sales call? Like, do you remember what the product was and what was it like uh, meeting the doctor for the first time with It was like your like legit first time in the office. It was a little nerve wracking. I, so when I first started off, I think I forgot to mention, I, I had footprint partners and uh, what the cool thing was is we were mutually aligned in our goals. So it really promotes a team effort. If they did well, I did just as well and vice versa. So my first few calls, um, I shadowed them and they introduced me to a lot of the offices. Uh, The first one I remember I was actually shadowing with one of um, a woman named Christy. She ended up being a mentor of mine. But I do remember the doctor walking up her uh, trying to engage with the doctor about something new in in gout um, was my first product. And the doctor basically looking at her, telling her she was, uh, I'll I'll clean it up a little bit, telling her she was full of beans and didn't believe what she was saying and uh, walked away. And that's where you kind of learned in sales, you have to have thick skinned and be willing to go back, learn from a mistake. You know, that wasn't important for that doctor. And the next time you come in, bring something different that might be important to them. So were you able to reconnect with that doctor and sell him a different product? Or was he just uh, having a bad day? Like, how do you know if a bridge is burned versus uh, the doctor is just maybe had an intense day and maybe kind of was, you know, taken out on on you? how How were you able to kind of read that, which is like, I, I can absorb this because I have developed the thick skin, but, uh, or I know, no, nope, I can't go back there. So it takes a, a lot in my industry to get to the point where you can't go back there. Um, you know, a lot of times doctors are, are having tough days. You know, they're dealing with sick people all the time, people mm-hmm. telling them about their problems all the time. They have personal lives where things are going on. So a lot of times, you know, they're just shooting the messenger, if you will. You're kind of the person they're they're projecting on. It it you'll know because they will tell you, or a staff member will, will tell you that you're no longer welcome in the office. Uh, fortunately, I think you know the teachers who had me and my friends who may listen to this 
we'll, uh, we'll be shocked. I've never been kicked out of an office, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you'll know. Usually, I'd say 99% of the time, it was just a doctor having a bad day. You have a region. Um, how, how much travel is involved? Um, so when I was in the Chicagoland area, uh, there was not a whole lot of travel. I mean, my territory was called Naperville. It went from Naperville to LaGrange, basically all those suburbs along Ogden in between. So there was really never a need for any overnights or anything. Now that I'm out in Kansas City, Missouri, um, I, I manage a team now out here. You know, my reps are probably doing one or two overnights a month because their footprints may span 300 miles. You know, but they're country roads, so you can get there a little bit quicker, you know, than if you were dealing with Chicago traffic. Um, so there's not a whole lot of how to a lot of travel involved. But when it comes to how often you see doctors under normal times, depending if you if you had a footprint partner, usually you are one of you is in there every week because you're selling a prescribing habit. And the habits are no different than anything you do in your own life. If your goal is to start exercising and you are exercising three or four times a week or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you keep doing that, it's easy to keep with your habits. Uh, we've all probably done that and then gone on vacation for a week where we don't exercise and it's a lot tougher to get started again. So if you're not in there on a consistent basis, your competitors are, um, and the doctor will start switching to different products. So really it's just about being consistent and being in there as much as you can. Well, how recently did you move from the Naperville region to Kansas City region? So my career's kind of taken me all over the place. I started off in Naperville uh, and then after about a year, a full-time position at Takeda instead of being on the contract team opened up downtown. So I went for that role and got it. And I lived a couple miles north of Wrigley Field for four or five years. During that time, Takeda's home office was in Deerfield. And for about a year, I, I took on a role as a sales trainer where I commuted to Deerfield um, every single day from downtown Chicago. It was, it was actually pretty terrible <laughs> dealing with the traffic on a day in and day out basis. And then uh, I took a different trainer role. They, they moved our home office to Boston. And so I took a different trainer role, which was called a regional sales trainer. And basically I supported um, a region and helped coach and upskill the reps. Uh, that, that role required a little bit of travel. And then eventually a manager role opened up in Kansas City and I was kind of tapped on the shoulder for it. And so me and my wife made the decision last January to uh, move ourselves out to Kansas City just before the pandemic started. So so now what does your day or week look like uh, now that you have this manager position? So typically on Mondays and Fridays, I'm working out of my house. Now that we're getting back to normal a little bit, um, Mondays and Fridays, I'm working out of my house. I'm usually on three or four conference calls a day. Um, getting information from people above me, different initiatives we've got to roll out to our sales teams, organizing that and putting it together, analyzing reports, um, doing field coaching logs, which are what I do after I ride with my representatives. And I ride with my rep representatives typically Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So I'll meet up with a rep and I'll just kind of follow them on their day and, and coach them up and try and get them better at selling to the doctors 
with the uh, end goal in mind of them hitting their goals. Um, and when they hit their goals, it trickles up to me hitting mine. How many different products are underneath you as a manager? Uh, are there several Is are there several Takeda managers in your region, but have different products or do you handle all of that uh, for the, the uh, that particular region that you're at? So at Takeda, we have four core business units. I fall under the neuroscience business unit. And so I carry under me all of our products, um, which is only three, and two of them are for the, the same disease. So it's not too much to handle. And then my rep, we call it carry in their bag um, because reps carry samples in their bag. So that's where the phrase comes from. <laughs> uh, they carry three products um, and they have to kind of manage uh, selling all of them. And and I kind of coach them and guide them through that. Where, so Takeda, they moved to Boston, uh, the, the, the headquarters. Was that because they wanted to be closer to a, a, the type of research laboratories? Like, because I know that there's like Harvard and MIT and, and so many Boston University have really good programs. What was the impetus for them to kind of move their, their headquarters there? I would say that what you just brought up, getting near the research um, institutions, was one of the main drivers. Um, the the other was in 2018, I believe, we bought another pharmaceutical company named Shire, and we were about equal sized pharmaceutical companies, um, and they had a home office in Boston. So when it came to moving, you know, you already had a synergy where you. It's not like you had to find a home office location. Um, there was already one there. And you got to be closer to the main um, pharmaceutical and uh, bio life space that's already out in the Boston area. So those were probably the two main drivers. So as a like a as a team leader, what are some of the things that you think are like like really good advice or like things that you have kind of found a, another learning curve with being in this position as manager? You know, you have to motivate people. This was probably a really tough year to kind of keep really every everyone going uh, and all that. What were some of the kind of little glimmers of hope that you had in terms of your leadership in this position? Uh, it was definitely a tough year. I mean, I, I do have to say I couldn't have been more fortunate with how the company treated us during the pandemic. I mean, they really took care of us and gave us job security during a time where so many people were being displaced and having to deal with the stress of not knowing what was going on. We, we were really fortunate. Um, from just an overall leadership perspective, though, I some of my key takeaways are just be again, being authentic, leading from the front. I mean, one of the first things you kind of go through when you're in training is, and it sounds so simple, is don't ask people to do things you wouldn't be comfortable doing yourself. But I've had I've had probably eight or ten managers in my career, and there's certainly ones that do that. Um, there's also managers who don't treat people like adults um, and kind of micromanage and and are overlooking them and not being as transparent as possible. And people can see through those stuff and they, and they don't see you as authentic. Um, those are some, some real key learnings. I think the other thing I've learned is, and I think you've probably, uh, not to put you on the spot with your students listening to you, but you know, 
it's it's a lot easier to give a longer leash. Um, you know, if you're too loose up front, people will take advantage of it. And it's a lot tougher to reel them in, probably no different than, than students. Um, but if you can kind of set clear expectations early and hold people accountable to those expectations, you're going to have a lot smoother sailing going on. And then once you build that trust with your people, you can start giving that that longer leash as they earn it. Yeah, I like that. I want to kind of come back to something that we had mentioned earlier. You said that you you had like a, a particular framework of mind when you were talking about your your kind of predisposition to really appreciate microeconomics and the kind of like incentive or risk reward and how you kind of evaluate things. I was wondering if you could maybe walk through like a scenario where you kind of use a, a, a kind of that mental model tool to kind of work through a, a problem or something like that. Definitely. So I think a real simple example is, is um, trying to coach and convince reps where to spend their time. So it's a little bit different now post pandemic and offices opening up in various times, but you know, you may have a list of 500 doctors, right? Well, they're not all equally as important. Um, and usually your more important doctors have the least amount of time, but, and they're tougher to see, they're tougher to access. And they kind of have that disposition where they're not as friendly when you go into the office and trying to convince folks that they're going to get more um, out of spending more time with those doctors um, than spending time with kind of the friendly doctor who's always happy to see you, but doesn't necessarily use your product. You know, that's not going to give you as, as good of results in the end. There's also budgets where, where people spend their promotional funds and how I allocate my promotional funds. You know, I have four footprints underneath me not all of them produce at the same level. So I have to make decisions on who gets more promotional money or who I spend more of my time with, um, who needs more coaching and, and what does that coaching yield me? So uh, this kind of goes back to your last question. You know, we always say with management, you want to move the middle, right? Your top performers, if I didn't spend one day in the car with them, they're going to be top performers, whether or not I'm there with them. I can make them a little bit better, but they're, they're going to be great. Your low performers, the amount of time it takes for you to get them to a middle performer, we'd probably say the juice isn't worth the squeeze. But your middle folks, they're the people that when you spend time, you can get them to being a top performer and thus producing at a top level. And so that's another you know, trade-off decision I have to make and probably the most important one that I have to make on a day-in and day-out basis. I was also wondering too, so you have to be so up, up to speed with kind of industry trends and and all of those things. What are the things that you do to kind of keep sharp in 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 your in your fields uh, in terms of like I mean obviously there's always new products that you have to learn and maybe new techniques and all that. I was wondering like what's what are the type of habits that you develop that kind of keep you sharp and effective at your job. Um, so I'm constantly trying to upskill on products and competitors. And so I can bring that to my team and, and coach them up. You know, there's, I have products in the ADHD space and there's been a couple of competitors to come out lately. And so you want to learn as much as you can on those products so you can sell against them in a compliant way. Um, so I'm constantly doing those things. Um, 
On a more macro level, unfortunately, I have to follow the political landscape a little bit because depending on um, different administrations, they have different views on the pharmaceutical industry and policy that gets put in place will ultimately trickle down to how I'm able to do my job and how we're operating, um, you know, within different regulations. So keeping up on current events, keeping up on what products are out there um, on an extremely micro level, I get reports all the time on sales trends. And so that keeping up on those on a weekly basis is really important. And then as a manager, that's one of those things where I'm looking into each one of my teams and I'm trying to figure out places they can go to get more business um, in order to, to produce at a higher level. Were there any like really formative business books or figures that you find like, wow, that, that, that individual, you know, really is able to kind of see the field very clearly, or were there any books or texts that you thought were very formative uh, for you? So I, um, now that I've, I've had more time, I listen to a lot of eBooks in my car. And one of the last ones I listened to before the pandemic, and I stopped traveling a little bit, was a book called Why Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek is just a really good book about leadership, um, leading from the front and leading by example. Um, Another book that I read recently while I had some free time during the pandemic was Emotional Intelligence 2.0. That would be another piece of advice I would give anyone who's in high school, entering college and thinking about their career. Emotional intelligence, all the studies show it's probably the most important skill you can have most, it's more important than IQ and it's really not even close um, to succeeding. And so the the good thing is if you have a low um, emotional intelligence score, it's something you can work on and develop. It's not a stagnant thing. You know, IQ is kind of how smart you are, Um, but you know, you can work on emotional intelligence and and self-awareness and that will get you farther than anything relating your IQ or how quote unquote smart you are. Mike, you've been so generous with your time today. What kind of advice would you have for success for current Wildcats? <laughs> uh, I would say a few things. I already talked about the value of getting an internship or tangible experience. I definitely, I, I don't know that I never would have gotten into pharmaceutical sales had I not um, done car sales while I was in college, but it certainly set me apart you know, any job that requires a college degree, you're going to want to separate yourself with some tangible experience. Once you have that job, networking is extremely important. You can have all of the um, performance and sales results you want, but in the end, you're going to be interviewing for promotions. And the more people know and recognize and trust you, Uh, the better your odds are for getting the job. And the more that your network, even if you don't have direct contact with the hiring manager, if your group of people is willing to come in and back you and say good things about you, that's going to really help influence decision makers on whether or not you're a good fit for a promotion. So that phrase I'm sure everyone's heard is it's not who, what you know, it's who you know. It really does hold true because there's been times in my career where I had stellar performance and didn't get roles. Um, And there's times where I had just good performance, but I networked 
like crazy and people knew who I was and I was able to capitalize that and turn it into promotions. And so you own that, you own your development, you own the ability to network. And so just get out there and do those things and don't wait to do them. You know, the minute you started a company, you know, learn the things early on, but start meeting the people you need to for the job you know, you want two or three years down the road. Ah, that was great. Mike, thank you so much. I learned a lot. This was really great. Awesome. Appreciate it. No problem. And uh, go Wildcats. Thanks for listening. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go, V-O-X. Or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast. 